This is the Sharpen Podcast. I'm actually the creator and producer of the show. This show would not be possible without Rocky Talkies. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by two climbers from Denver. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and more affordable than any other backcountry radio on the market. And now, they have a brand new waterproof mic. Make your adventures safer with better communication by purchasing a set of their radios. And in this story, my guest will tell you firsthand that she wished she had them in this scenario. And if you like discounts, get 10% off your radios by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharpend. And thank you so much to all of my Patreon supporters out there. Special shout out to Greg H. and Jeff H. for your donations via PayPal. And now, I have an exciting new partnership to introduce to you. The American Alpine Institute. They have signed on for a six-month partnership. The American Alpine Institute's mission is to provide world-class mountain education, exceptional guided experience, and to inspire natural preservation. The Institute provides education, skills development, and guiding in rock and ice climbing, mountaineering, backcountry skiing and snowboarding, avalanche awareness, technical rescue, canyoneering, backpacking, and wilderness skills. With operations in six states and 16 countries, The Institute is widely regarded as a leader in comprehensive technical mountain adventure. Learn more at alpineinstitute.com. Okay, and to kick off this partnership, the American Alpine Institute will be giving away a $1,000 tuition voucher for any public group course. This voucher is transferable and will expire December 31st, 2024. To sign up, visit my website at thesharpbendpodcast.com and enter the giveaway right on the homepage. The drawing will be May 15th. Good luck. The guest on today's episode was coming down the Athabasca Glacier after spending nine days winter camping up in the Columbia ice fields. Her crew had just resupplied two days prior with another 10 days worth of food and fuel, etc. At one point, her sled went parallel to a narrow crevasse and her polk, a snow sled she was towing behind her, lined up with her body when she broke through a snow bridge falling 10 meters down into the ice. I'll let my guest tell you what happened, how she got out of the crevasse, and what she learned. I hope you enjoy. My name's Gabs. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I'm based in the Bow Valley in Canada. Um, I'm originally from Australia, but I've been in Canada for about seven years now. So four of us um were had received a grant the jen higgins grant from the alpine club of canada to do a ski trip on the columbia ice fields uh it's not far from canmore i guess it's like the canadian rockies and our goal was to summit all 13 peaks on the columbia ice fields in one trip wow that's a great goal (laughs) yeah it was super cool (laughs) what time of year was this uh, it was in May, so it was coming into spring, though um, if anyone remembers last spring, it was not really spring conditions at all. Um, it was pre- uh, still pretty like winter conditions up there um, mm-hmm. in May. It was, you know, temperatures of like minus 20 most of the time. Minus 20. Yeah. <laughs> it was super cold for May. The May before we were in t-shirts, so yeah, pretty different conditions. Yeah. And have you done some trips with the other three people that were on this trip before? No, actually, we didn't really know each other super well. So we had 
Um, so the Jen Higgins grant is for women under 30. Um, so basically, um, I asked this person that I kind of met a few months prior um, if she'd be interested in something like this. And she was super stoked. And we kind of started trip planning and then um, asked two other people um, that were like friends of friends that we'd met a couple of times. So we weren't all super close, um, but we are now. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's kind of where it all stemmed from. So I guess we were, I think we were about like eight days in and one of the people on our team, Katie, got sick. So we skied her out and then um, a couple of friends joined us uh, and we skied back up the ice fields. Um, our goal was to do Columbia the next day. So we set up camp pretty close to Mount Columbia. Um, and it was like the first night that it was like clear skies. We had like basically whiteout conditions the entire time we were up there. Uh, we managed to get, I think like six peaks done in pretty medium conditions. <laughs> we didn't have very good views. Um, but yeah, so... Um, we went to do Columbia and we did it in pretty marginal conditions, probably, you know, that's like one of the things you think about when you're like, do we need to go up in bad weather and things like that? Um, it's one of the questions I think about a lot now before I go up, but, um, it kind of all started from Columbia and it was kind of like a snowball effect and, um, on the ascent of Columbia, um, you know, it's quite steep. It's a pretty straightforward boot pack. Um, it's super glaciated, though, especially if you go off route. Um, well, it then, says, I'm reading a little bit about the Columbia Ice Field, and it says it's the largest ice field in the Rocky Mountains, and it is one of the most accessible expanses of glacial ice in North America. There are 22 named peaks on the ice field, of which Mount Columbia, which you're describing your climb right now, Mount Columbia is the tallest out of all of them at 3,747 meters, which is a little over 12,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's super rad. It's a, uh, it's like a really cool objective to do. And, you know, it's, it's pretty far back there. So I think if you're doing it from car to car in a day, it's like something like 45 kilometers or something. Um, so it's pretty, pretty back there. Um, yeah, and I guess so we had pretty bad conditions of super strong winds, minus 20 or so. Um, and on the descent, you know, we had like glimpses of blue sky. We were kind of just in a cloud. Surely it will clear and it, it didn't. <laughs> um, on the descent, we triggered a wind slab um, over an ice cliff. We were a little off our route uh, that we approached on. Um, it was really hard to follow out boot pack on the descent because your tracks were just wind blown over. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like the winds were strong enough that it was just like hard to see the ground enough to like make out your, um, boot pack. And there was a lot of sistrugi, which is like that rippled snow and it was super firm. So it was just kind of hard to, hard to make it out in points. Um, yeah. So we found ourselves like slightly two skiers left, um, which is above an ice cliff. There's a bunch of crevasses kind of in that area underneath the ice cliff. Um, that's where the slab kind of ran into. It was like maybe a 1.5 or 2 um, size avalanche. And then we all got kind of down safely and we skinned back to camp that evening and kind of just were like, okay, I think we need to 
talk about if it's smart to keep going on this trip when obviously the conditions have been against us. It's still winter up here and there's obvious signs of like wind slab in certain areas and it's just like something to keep in mind. So we were like, there's no, um, you know, blue skies in the forecast. And to this point, the forecast had been incredibly inaccurate. We were getting like Friends give us updates um, on the outside. Uh, we were just texting them on our inreaches to give us weather updates. And they'd be like, I think it's a blue sky in the morning. And it would be like, you know, just puking snow. <laughs> we had like a meter of snow in the time we were up there in the eight days. It was like ridiculous. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we decided that it was wise to turn around and ski out. So we went to bed you know, not too late that night and got up pretty early because we saw that there was a storm rolling in at like, you know, eight or something in the morning is what it looked. Um, so we got up pretty early at like five in the morning and it had already started snowing by seven. So we were pretty sucked in um, on the descent, but we were pretty comfortable with the descent, you know, like we'd gone up and down the same track um, a few times this week already. Um, when we first approached in, we went up the same track and, um, when we skied Katie out, we went up and down the same area. Um, there is like, so if you're looking at Athabasca Glacier, there's three, maybe like main kind of routes people would take. Um, we were look, we were taking the lookers left approach. There is the middle kind of approach, um, and then the far right, which um, they all have their own kind of risks, I guess. And, you know, if you take the lookers right, you're going under Snow Dome's icefall, which um, is pretty active. I see it, like, go every time I'm up there. And, you know, it has reached the crevasses in the middle. It's, like, not the most complicated glacier, but it definitely, you know, it's still obviously things can happen. Yeah. Um, so on the descent, we were in two rope teams of three. We unroped for the first headwall just because we had um, heavy gear and we had just resupplied when we skied our friend Katie out. So we planned to be up on the ice fields for another 10 days to tag the rest of the peaks. So we had really heavy packs and really heavy pulks. Um, really heavy what? Pulks. So like basically like a we put it on like a magic carpet, but basically like a something to trail behind you with extra luggage and stuff. Okay. Like a toboggan or a sled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a sled. Um, so um when we re-roped up, um, I was in front and then Megan and then Caro was at the end. Um, so we were the original three um and then our friends who had joined us to do columbia were just behind us in a group of three as well and what's and, our experience level like for glacier travel you all pretty experienced with that type of movement and that type of terrain yeah yeah for sure we'd been up all of us had been up in that area before um and you know we have maybe like anywhere between i think like three and five years kind of experience in Spain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
we had like pretty frequent trips. <laughs> um, so we were descending and um, the other group had just started overtaking me um, because we had to break trail that day. Um, so they started leading. So we weren't breaking trail because we had we were the ones with the heavy backpacks. They were just coming up for a day trip or an overnight trip. So their bags, bags weren't so heavy. Um, so they started leading in front. And it was kind of just after they had overtaken us. Um, so on Athabasca Glacier, basically there's like two tiers and then there's like a shelf. Um, so we were at the top tier kind of, and then there's like a little ramp and it's not super steep, but it's definitely, you know, you have to snowplow and kind of like pizza your way down if you have a lot of weight on you. Um, especially if you're roped up, it's not the best descent being roped. Um, a lot of people descend under the snow dome icefall. Um, and the reason we didn't do that is just based on we had like a lot of weight with us and the crevasses over there are parallel to the way you ski down. And it was like not ideal to be roped up going that approach. Um, so if we're gonna be roped, it was easier to manage speed on the other side. Anyway, so um, I was at the front and I was snow plowing to slow down and my pulk ended up parallel to where I was as it started moving in front of me as we were starting like to gain a little bit of speed as we were going down the hill. And my left ski went parallel um, with a crevasse and I immediately fell down. Did you see the crevasse or, or was it completely snow covered? Was it like a snow bridge that was hidden? Yeah, it was a snow bridge that was hidden. It was, it must have been like 10 centimeters thick though. The I snow bridge there, was. Yeah, I think there had just been enough wind effect since we'd been there to cover up some of the other crevasses that maybe were exposed originally. And we may have been just like ever so slightly left of our original track that we had been going up and down on. Um, cause it was a little bit drier when we first had come up. So we had a little bit more visibility to see what was going on. And this time there'd been a lot more snow and wind effect. Um, so yeah, I guess some of the snow bridges had just covered enough, but, um, weren't actually really snow bridges. So you punched a hole in, you, you broke the snow bridge with your weight of your left ski and that just opened up a bottomless pit. Yeah, so I, it was like very, it was so fast. I don't really remember, but Megan was like, oh, I thought you had it. Cause like she could see me fall in and I put my arms out in like as a reaction. And I had like black arms underneath my arms after this. And it like, I don't remember even doing that. And then it was like seconds of just like flashing snow and skis. And then eventually I felt a tug and I was finally caught and I fell about eight meters into a crevasse. It was about shoulder width wide. And yeah, it was one of the scariest moments of my life. It was, you know, when you just like have nothing underneath you and it's this bottomless feeling, almost like when you're on rides and you're like, oh, this is the best feeling ever. And it was like, it was like that, but the worst feeling ever. Um, and then 
you know, falling into the like through a crevasse maybe wouldn't have been the worst scenario ever. We were, but um, I'd made a few errors that I now would never do. But basically, um, we had used some of that crevasse rescue gear to extend our pulks because they weren't really long enough. They were kind of like getting in the way. So we used like one of our like 240 um, centimeter long slings to like extend um, the pulk length. And we had clipped um, a carabiner on either side of our backpacks. So when I fell into the crevasse, the weight of my pulk slipped up the shoulders of my backpack and pulled me backwards. So I was upside down in the crevasse. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> you know, when you're like, oh, maybe I'll be one of those people that remains calm and like figures their shit out a little bit. <laughs> I was like screaming in agony. It was the worst feeling. Um, I started throwing up. I kept trying to pull myself upright um, with the rope. And then it wasn't working. Every time I kind of pulled myself upright, I would fall further back. I like even jammed my foot into the ice to try and pull myself up. And then it kind of got stuck and I started kicking it out because I was like, oh, no, I don't want my foot to get stuck in the ice in here. Um, but yeah, so then I was like, OK, like I just had to keep telling myself to like pull it together and do something. So um, I reached for my ice screw, which is really hard to get to when you're upside down. All like your stuff is kind of like underneath your bag and you're just like doing anything upside down is really difficult. Um, so I started screwing an ice screw in and even like, I only got it like halfway in before I was like too paranoid that I was going to fall further. And I clipped myself um, with a hollow block that was on my harness and just clipped myself to that. Um, so I was somewhat safe because I knew I had a lot of weight on me. I was probably with like with my bag, my body and the pulk, I was probably like a hundred kilos did your pulk f fall down in the crevasse with you? Yeah. So your backpack and is being pulled down by this the pulk below yeah. you. So the backpack was like still on my shoulders and then the pulk um was clipped onto the sh like the shoulder straps of my backpack. And so all the weight was basically coming from my shoulders, my pulk and bag included. And because my pulk was probably like four meters away from me, it was really hard to pull the weight of it up. Um, and then, so I thought about cutting it and I thought about just dropping my pack altogether, which I definitely could have done. Um, I just didn't want to lose all my stuff. I can't afford to lose all my, <laughs> it's like pretty funny when you think about it in those moments, you're like, oh no, what should I do? And I'm like, no, I really can't afford to lose all this stuff. Like maybe I could just like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear and equipment. Yeah. So I, I mean, I get it. I mean, it's just, it's, but it's pulling you down. Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll reach for my knife. And my knife was, I used a, like a screw locking carabiner to clip myself to the ice screw. And my knife was on that screw locking carabiner, but because I hadn't fully secured the ice screw in before I clipped to it, I had like kind of twisted it a little further in with the carabiner on it, which, so it got all like twisted and I had to like readjust a lot of things to like get to my knife, which was really annoying. So I was too scared to like 
you know, this is the only other safety thing that I have aside from falling into like the black void below me because there was no constriction in sight. It was just a hole that just kept going. And I was like, I'm not unclipping myself to this ice screw. I'm just going to, you know, be in pain because it, it was awful. And so I kept screaming out to like for my friends to do a drop loop um, so they could take the weight of the backpack off me and I could flip upright and then, you know, we could reassess what to do next. Um, so maybe like 15 minutes had gone by. I know their first anchor blew. It didn't hold. Um, so their second anchor held. Uh, I don't remember what they used for an anchor. Uh, it might have been a T-slot. There was like enough snow um, that I think that's what they end up using or a ski. Um, and then they sent a drop loop down, but it wasn't long enough. <laughs> I remember just seeing the drop loop above me and being like, oh my God, this is such a sweet relief. And then it didn't reach. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um so they had to get the extra rope we carried basically we were on a I think we were on a 60 meter rope between three of us and then we had an extra 30 meter rescue rope in the third bag and I had some rope um coiled up at the front as well so basically they used the next rope sent down a drop loop um they took the weight off my bag and I was able to flip upright. Oh my gosh. I bet that was such a relief for you to get the weight of your backpack and your pulk that was pulling you down backwards off uh, of your backs and then yeah, be able to. Flip so nice. I was like, uh, it, it made me question. Like, I know all this stuff caught my, like, caught my fall. Like, we were on a six mil cord, but it was like, it felt like a dynamic fall you know like I fell quite far and I'm sure there was like a little bit of slack between us because we were skiing down um but there is also like more stretch than I would have imagined in a static rope <laughs> and I was on one of those like very thin glacier harnesses and I'm like I'm really glad this small amount of stitching could hold all this weight because <laughs> like it wasn't like confidence inspiring when I looked yeah. at what I was hanging on um and then I guess um, once they had the weight of my bag, um, they just started hauling it up, but then they had to stop because basically, because I had some coils uh, with extra rope on the front of my pack, when they started pulling it up, that rope was still obviously attached to me. So it was stuck. And then I started trying to unravel it, but the bag was too high for me to reach it. And I started trying to unravel it to like, lower it to me um but then it got all kind of tangled in itself and so they like they couldn't just pull the bag up and it was hard to lower the bag I think just because it was so heavy so they were kind of like stuck in this position and they were like okay we need to reassess and in the meantime the other group hadn't really noticed what had happened they went down the whole slope and then they turned around maybe like obviously like a few minutes later at the ramp um, at the bottom of the ramp at the plateau and they realized we weren't there. Um, and then they saw Megan crouched over and realized that I was missing. And then they realized that I had fallen into a crevasse. So they had switched over to skins to start skinning back up and like probed, um, on their way up. And there was a bunch of holes between where they were and we were. 
we were just in like a super heavy, heavily crevassed area. And it was like a really, <laughs> a really unfortunate place. Like on LF, we were underneath Andromeda Icefall, which is like a very active icefall. And, you know, there's always avalanche hazard and like just a bunch of things. And we were just like in a place you really don't want to stop for very long. Um, so they were just taking their time to come back up and building at anchor was complicated for them. Um, they had to do it like 10 meters away from where I was in the crevasse and to throw a drop loop to me, they had to get someone on belay and they belayed them over all these holes that basically every like meter or so they would poke their whole knee would poke into this huge gaping hole. And like from my view in a crevasse, I could see through this slot that there was just like this huge crevasse next to us. And it was like, I don't know, <laughs> just felt like you're in a minefield and you're like, how the hell do we get out of this scenario? Yeah. yeah. And then Sarah, who was on the other team through, like got pretty close to the edge of the crevasse and threw down a drop loop to me. And then with a puffy, cause I was getting pretty cold down there. Um, and they started hauling me out. Um, I lost one of my skis in the crevasse. The other was kind of on the surface. It had like ejected when I fell down. And then um, by the time they'd hauled me out and I kind of slid all the gear that was around me to them, um, they told me there was heli coming in like 45 minutes. Uh, we weren't very, we were so close to the road, really, like Athabasca Glacier is very close to the road. Um, it was just more that I had lost a ski, so it would be kind of annoying to get out from there. We had 45 minutes, basically, to get the rest of the group across this crevasse field and back over to some rocks where the heli could uh, land. And uh, so they had to, like, jump with all these bags and all this weight on belay, basically, they jumped over these crevasses and walked um, toward where I was. And that whole ordeal took, probably took 45 minutes. And then we slowly probed our way across to the rocks. And I just want to say, like, it's so interesting because this is like, it is spring, but it was basically winter conditions. And everything we had probed, we probed on the way up. And we'd probed on the ice fields quite a bit. And everything was probing like two and a half meters to three meters or you wouldn't hit ice at all. So it was a really deep snowpack. So for this area to be had like just so many holes, it just must have been the fresh snow had covered up a lot of the crevasses that we had seen on the way up. Um, so, yeah, it was just like hard to determine and probably because the low visibility, it was hard to distinguish, you know, when you're when it's such low vis and you're trying to figure out exactly your bearings or like basically you could just see a point of reference and you would like kind of ski toward that. And that's kind of the conditions we were in. Uh, it was lucky. Uh, it started clearing in the afternoon during the rescue scenario. And that's why the heli was able to land. Um, and then we got helied out um, two groups at a time uh, to, or one group at a time to just to the, information center across the road and so what were the lessons learned gabs there's a few things like a huge part of why it was like so uncomfortably painful for me was um 
not being able to just undo my bag. And someone told me after the rescue that when they have a heavy pack, what you can do is actually prosic uh, your pack onto the rope. So if you ever do fall in a crevasse, you can just take off your pack straight away. I would also prosic my pulk to the rope as well. Basically, don't attach everything to yourself and don't let it only be attached to yourself. So in those kinds of scenarios, you can get out of those situations quite easily. Um, and then I would never use my crevasse rescue gear to um, use to like uh, basically what we used for Alpolk kind of system, like um, hauling system, I would never use my crevasse rescue gear for that. I would keep it, you know, I'm pretty like, I'll have certain carabiners for certain things and I'll have lockers on things that need lockers. And it's important that it's that way because it just makes it really efficient when something goes wrong. And because all everyone in our group had used some of the crevasse gear just to like save some weight, to haul their pulks, it just meant that everyone was in the same scenario. We didn't have enough like slings and carabiners and things like that. Um, I would, two-way radios would be awesome. It would have been like really beneficial for us both on Mount Columbia and in the crevasse fall process to use radios to communicate within the team. Like they were screaming over to me in the crevasse and I could barely hear them. So it was really hard to communicate and I just didn't know what they were doing ever. I like had no idea when they had an anchor set up. I just like, you know, those kinds of things would have been really helpful. I think honestly, it's just the most important thing and the way like we are able to get out of this situation unharmed is because everyone is super trained in what they do and everyone knew how to do crevasse rescue. So I think it's just like important that you know the skills and you practice the skills before you go out. Um, That's the way we were able to. So yeah. Who who called search and rescue? Um, so the other group when they had turned around and realized that it was maybe a more complicated scenario to getting me out, called a rescue. And one of the people on our team um had messaged his partner and they work for CMH Heli and stuff. So they were able to call Jasper Search and Rescue. We had hit the inreach button, but I think honestly it was faster and just like uh, the amount of information that comes from someone knowing what's happened. Is anyone actually hurt? Are you roped up? All these things can get passed along to search and rescue. So they know what they're dealing with. Do you um, think that, that the second group that was below you would have called search and rescue if they knew that you weren't injured? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that maybe they wouldn't have, but we were just in a really bad place. And I think they knew that I'd lost my ski um, or that had gotten communicated pretty fast. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking what one option could have been instead of calling to rescue because you weren't injured. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, you're in a really bad place with avalanche hazard and maybe Serac fall and just the minefield of super thin snow bridges that you're that you're all surrounded by at this point so just the sort of the desire to get out of that location super fast um but i'm wondering because you weren't injured i wonder if another alternative could have been just to put you in a polk sort of toboggan you out to a better location yeah i mean like even with the search and rescue call um 
we basically you had to move somewhere safer for them to even for heli even to land so right I think it was more like I think it's good to notify search and rescue what's happening but it wasn't that we were asking necessarily to get rescued at the start it was more this is like a communication call this is what's happened we'll let you know if we need a heli um but I think it's good to put it out there if you can like if there's a way to message and because we had someone communicating on the outside it wasn't that um, it was getting misconstrued that we needed a rescue. It was that uh, this is the scenario. We'll keep you updated. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. explaining a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and then they, I guess, I don't know, maybe they weren't busy or maybe we just got lucky, but they were like, we can get, we can give you a heli out. We, we had the means for sure to, I could have just walked out and it would have been okay. <laughs> Thank you, Gabs, for sharing your story with us. I'm really glad that you didn't get hurt, and I'm so impressed with how much you took away from this experience. I'd like to know what you learned from this episode. Send me an email and let me know. I really love engaging with my listeners. Show your support by donating on PayPal or becoming a Patreon member. Patreon members receive exclusive content such as my weekly Wednesday mini-episodes. And if you want more Sharp Bagnet episodes in your life, sign up on Patreon today. Thank you to Rocky Talkies and the American Alpine Institute for supporting my show. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. Did you know that the American Alpine Club has their own podcast? It's all about unearthing the climbers you need to hear from. With episodes that dive into the life of search and rescue teams or explore the crucial role of climbing for the mountain troops during World War II, the AAC podcast is covering the history, policy, climbing education, and culture that matters most to climbers. Meet the climbers who climbed 10,000 pitches in Eldo, or the USA athlete who believes ice climbing is the most human form of climbing. You can find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. Check it out. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>